Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guests for episode 182 are Alan and Barb Vest, that together make up the band Double V. Now, Alan played in a band called the Starlight Mints throughout the aughts. They were based in Norman, Oklahoma, which is where Alan and Barb still are now. Starlight Mints released four studio albums and a live one. And you're right now listening to Eyes of the Night from their final album, 2006's Drowaton, which, as we'll discuss, was used as a TV theme song in Britain. And after that band broke up, Alan met his wife, Barb. They started recording together in around 2013. They released their first album, Jack the Writer, in 2017 and have now released an EP and then their new album, Treat Her Strangely. We'll discuss the middle side of me from that new album and then the title track from their first full album, 2017's Jack the Writer, and look back to a Starlight Mints tune, Submarine Number no. 3, from The Dream That Stuff Was Made Of, their debut from 2000. We'll conclude by listening to a song called Map the Channels from Double V's 2019 EP, Songs for Birds and Bats. For more information, please visit doublev.net. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or if you want to support the effort, patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little bit of Eyes of the Night by Starlight Mints from Drowaton. You can spell it or you can pronounce it however you like. Drowaton. It's not a <laughs> word backwards. So From 2006. Now, was that actually written as... A TV theme song, or was that just picked up as a TV theme song? It was just picked up as a TV theme song. A few years later, I guess. We yeah. wrote, I mean, I actually wrote it and we toured playing it, you know, before it was even on a record. And then it got picked up by, uh, yeah, uh, Demons, uh, BBC mm-hmm. series on England. So Google tells me. I'm not familiar with the show, but I'm familiar with those short form. I don't know. Was it something that was supposed to be multiple seasons or was it only supposed to be in and out? I don't really have much of an opinion about it. I'm glad that they used it. I wish more people would use it for their their theme songs. It's just a matter of you hit a jackpot, but it's not like it Supernatural took it on and was on for 19 seasons. <laughs> yeah, it was used in other things and it did propel it. I think British teenagers were learning it on the guitar and stuff at the time. I saw some YouTube videos way back in the day. All right, so that was all orientation. I guess, can we get a brief shape of the career that is, we've got a few albums with Starlight Mints starting 2000. 2000. All right. Yeah. Through 2009, this project with the two of you picks up in 2017. Is that right? Well, really. 2013. Okay. All right. So we released our first demos. Yeah. We met in 2010 and then we really started doing music stuff right off the bat, but didn't seriously do any like band stuff until 2012. And we did Jack the Writer was our first song. All right. And so two full albums and an EP later, tell us before we hear The Middle Side of Me, the song that we picked from the current album, which is called Treat Her Strangely. Right. That's a phrase from the first track on the album, 
the middle side of me is the third track and it's one that we used all of our exterior musicians on. We had hired a trombonist, violin, violist, and a trumpeter to play. And they're all three. So it's really probably our most orchestral song on there. And then Alan, you know, on the cello, which was one of his first instruments. So just kind of a little more of an orchestral feel to it at times. I mean, that song kind of has two different sections to it. treasure on the island though We came together in the middle of a giant storm So nice, compact, only a little over three minutes. I guess that's sort of your general approach, right? That if you can pack a lot of sections, a lot of arrangement, a lot of ideas into a fairly tight package, you've got this whole, basically an orchestra in front of you. I could see adding in a big 
bridge section to let them go further or let them jam or something. But your preference seems to be for the narrow. Oh, yeah. Futures speaking. I mean, that'd be great to like have a, a full orchestra behind us on some of these songs. But between us and our small studio, we still managed to get a pretty big sound. And- we use a lot of virtual instruments as well. And we tried to replace all those on this record. And so that particular song, we mixed some virtual instruments as well into it. Um, like the timpanis, stuff like that. Yeah, that's what really makes it feel like, you know, you've got the big section behind you that even when you hear, I don't know, when you do cello, is it one cello? Is it, do you double, triple check it? I like to double things. We we like to double things. I mean, sometimes not our voices, but sometimes our voices too. Mm-hmm. You know, just gives it a bigger, richer sound. Or I know, and the just, cello, we went down to Texas to record that. We did <laughs> pretty much everything else here, but that was actually our brother-in-law's cello. He has a nicer instrument that Alan does, so... Yeah, I haven't sprung for an expensive cello in my life. So am I right that Starlight Mints, as when it started, that you were like ELO, that you had a, a string section actually part of the band? Well, kind of a mini ELO, yeah. We were a seven-piece. We had a mm-hmm. celloist, Mary Beth Lee, and James Hondrich was our violinist. Yeah, and that was kind of our thing, you know, for a while. But really, before we toured or anything, we were a band for like about three years, and we disbanded having done all these demos, including uh, Submarine Number 3, which we're going to talk about. And then I had been talking to Dave Sardi, a producer, about releasing an album of these demos with these demos and possibly some other songs. So I just brought all the reel-to-reels. Just I wasn't really even talking to the band members because we had kind of just disbanded. Some people had moved away and stuff. And brought all these reel-to-reel tapes, you know, 16-track, 2-inch tape to New York and dumped it all down to Pro Tools. And then we made a record. At that point, were you arranging the strings yourself or was one of the string players? I'm pretty weird about doing all the arrangements. That's kind of my thing. I originally did the song before, speaking of Submarine Number 3, that song, I had a four track of it years before even Starlight Mints formed. So, And I had written all the cello parts and they were both cello parts at the time. And then we made it into uh, cello and violin. Did you take composition courses in college? Or, or is it that because you played cello, you start writing as if it were a guitar? I'm an ear person, so I, I know my music theory with guitar. And I can translate that to piano and stuff. But it's mainly like an ear thing, you know. I've always kind of had an ear for it. So with the new tune, does that mean, as you said, you use virtual instruments, you get the demo down, you arrange it that way by ear, and then you take it somewhere and say, make this strings. <laughs> yeah, well, that's when Barb kind of helps with the arranging thing, because she's kind of more... She reads sheet music. She, yeah, Alan yeah, 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 she reads sheet music, so I have to kind of go through her and say, hey, is this, you know, an F sharp or uh, whatever. So Barbara, was piano your first instrument? Yeah, absolutely. I took piano lessons as a child. and. Just kind of grew up around the piano with my family. You would always just have sing-alongs. And uh, my grandmother was a composer and playwright. So yeah, I just kind of grew up playing the piano and singing and dabbled here and there in little band projects and singing backup for a couple of recordings and things. But my first full-blown band experience really has been Double V. Well, and I noticed in the intro of this, you're playing the melody line, but you double it just a little bit. Like you thicken it, but you don't do full left-hand chords or something. What was the approach? Yeah, it was, it's pretty simple. Piano. It's the first time that we actually used our actual piano here at the house, which was... For a double V song. Yeah, for, yeah. for double V, yeah. for every double V album. 
which is really nice because it was my first you know, actual piano of mine. That was a surprise gift when I first moved into my new house here. And we did all, all these takes and it was great, but we realized the piano was out of tune. I can't use my piano upstairs unless I want to play in it. Like it move everything down a half step or so. Like it's not, even if you tune it, it goes back out immediately. But right. we, we tuned it like in Pro Tools. Oh, oh, I see. So minutely out of tune. But the thing with pianos is when they go out of tune, they kind of all go out of tune together, you know? So it was like a little, everything's a little flat. And so for the most part, I think we could just tune a section as I recall. Because it's been like over a year since we've... Well, that helps then that you're not doing a full left-hand part or something because then it, there's too many notes. Even if they're all similarly flat, it's still... It worked out. It's all I know. you know. And we're going to get it tuned someday soon. Mm-hmm. Or I'll tune it myself because it's like all you need is a tuner, right? And a little bit of knowledge. So even with the where Barb's voice comes in and out, is that part of the orchestration as far as you're concerned, Alan? Or is that more of a collaborative effort of, Barb, just do something? <laughs> A little bit of both. It's a collaborative effort, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, on all the vocals and harmonies and any of that, it's all collaboration. Are there points of, you know, Barb, I'm just going to mute you on the first line here because I don't feel like, you know, I need to have more build. Do you take any of that kind of stuff personally or? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, we know that's how it works. We both have opinions on things. And no, I'll go through our mixes, you know, second by second and have opinions on how things should be. Yeah. adjusted so we're very kind of into google docs these days like it's like we'll have our lyrics all on google docs and then we'll there's a little chat window she'll be upstairs i'll be down here and we'll be like you know going through things so are the, even the lyrics collaborative at this point or is it just one or the other of you definitely oh, no. definitely yeah. yeah all pretty 50 50 on that so what is this song about <laughs> i mean it's okay if you don't want to demystify but the middle side of me in particular, do you even know what that means? I think there's like so many different meanings for it personally. Oh, I mean, I think any song is open to listener interpretation, but yeah, it's more of just like a bedtime story that we're telling to each other. It's how it kind of comes across to me. And I think it has a little bit of kind of an Alice in Wonderland, Swiss Family Robinson <laughs> feel to it. I mean, you kind of have to let go and fantasize a bit. Yeah, I mean, it could be interpreted as a lot of things, which is a good thing. Well, I was wondering how much you discussed that with each other, if you're collaborating on this or whether it's just, I added a line. <laughs> like when we came up with the middle side of me, I remember just us both going, yeah, that could mean so many things. And we choose a lot of lyrics just based on phonetics, you know, what sounds best and works best, you know, with you know those chord changes. or. But lyrics they usually come last in most songs. I mean, like a song like Submarine Number no. 3, we were talking about earlier, that for some reason that just came out of me in 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a rare occasion, though. Usually, though, we start with an idea. There'll be something that starts the song. It'll have some kind of substance. I mean, in this case, was it, let's do a mariachi? Like, was it the piano slash string line? Was that the... That was already written, like, for middle side of me, like, the piano and the... We had an idea already, a couple different Pro Tools sessions with that melody years ago, really. And then it was just sort of, we like sort of handpicked the idea and then fleshed it out after that. It's a pretty simple song though, where you think about it. Yeah. I see the fantasy elements, you know, and we come together and, but as something sort of written to each other, it also sounds a little resentful. (laughs) 
we're no longer checking all the doors. I think the whole album is has that sort of vibe a little bit. And I don't think it's intentional, like towards each other. Yeah, it's not towards each other. Just because we're saying yeah. I or me, it's not necessarily. But it was about written during us. in the middle of the pandemic, so you know, right? It was a very very dark it was, time. It was a dark so. time. Yeah, for sure. And we're kind of kind of darker sensibilities anyway. All of our stuff has a kind of a different twist to it. I think. I mean, was there sort of a psychological point of we used to whatever test every door means. And now in terms of a change in musical approach or a change in approach of life, like, was there something that you were grappling with there or is it really just? No, it's definitely not personal at all. I think that we are in a state of mind of writing things about, I don't think we write things personally, you know, at all. We're not here to. Not a lot. There's a couple of songs that are. Yeah. Yeah. Things in the background. Has that changed quite a bit? Like I found as a mature adult, you know, I don't have the angst and the stuff that to get off my chest. So it, it is more of a puzzle, a game, a storytelling exercise as opposed to I got to wrench this thing. Right. Well, we're also just pretty private people. And, you know, this day of social media where you're supposed to just expose every aspect of your life. It's nice to be able to just, you know, go into fantasy and not necessarily be writing about ourselves and just write about a character like, oh, Jack the Writer. That sounds like a good transition point. Let's get the second song out there. So we're going back to 2017. Sometimes that seems only yesterday, but you know, this band has been going for a good recording, releasing albums for five years. Plus, you know, you said several years before that. So Jack the Writer, this is the first track off the first full album, the title track. Give us a little intro before we hear it, and then we'll talk more in detail. It was just the first double V song that we finished together. It was our first single, initially released it as a demo in 2013, and then went back into the studio 115 recording with Wes Sharon and Norman to finish the mixing and mastering of the official versions. We had a blast writing this song. Like we said earlier, it was our first song that we put out as a single. It wasn't finished yet, but we put it at local radio and stuff in 2013, 2012, actually, I think. This version, or did it get... I mean, it's pretty much this version. It just got remixed. Like, you hear the ay ay which was done totally live and spontaneous, so... Like, with everybody in the studio, that was... <laughs> well, with us, too. Yeah, that's... <laughs> we are everybody, really. Yeah, of, so. snaps and claps. And yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That song is just... There was an idea of that song that did have, like, the snaps and claps and the piano at the beginning that was shelved sitting on a hard drive for a long time. I don't really remember even starting to write that song. It was basically the snaps and claps for these MIDI and re- a program called Reason. Well, it's a very fast castanets, yes. So yeah, you I cannot think. reproduce those you know, <laughs> snaps. I wouldn't even try. She said she'd never give up Tell me right now, tell me I'm right 
in terms of this is a story, I mean, the whole thing, you say it's the Moonlit Fables of Jack the Writer is the name of the album. I didn't listen closely enough to the other tracks lyrically to see if this is actually a concept album or if, or if that's just a whimsical title based on this. It is a loose concept album. Yeah, we had kind of a vision in our mind of a big theatrical show to go along with it, with a rotating set and you know stage sets designed by our album artist, Grant Fust. And So this would be the overture where you r- reveal that the character is going to be dead by the end. And he drove off a cliff. Something happens, yeah. <laughs> and it was also our first official music video. And we collaborated with an animator from London named Paul Solomons and... He based his artwork on the existing art by Grant Fust and brought it all to life, which was just really exciting to see that happen. Sorry, the existing artwork. So wait, this was based on source material? The existing artwork by Grant Fust, our album artist. Oh, okay. And then Paul Solomons, the animator in London, took those thoughts and animated. Not that this is based on a 17th century story or something that this is. No. We had the whole idea of Jack, the writer, like, he could be a writer, like writing book. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot, a lot of things to play with when we came up with the concept that it was Jack the writer. At first, it was just like, ah, da, da, you know, we had you know this idea of like, yeah, what, it was a great melody. What yeah, goes with this? What, yeah, so we kind play of, with it. The string stuff on this is that sampled or is that it's sampled? Yeah, we were doing mostly sampled stuff then. That was all sampled except yeah. for trumpet. We invested a lot in virtual instruments. So the drums on both of these songs, is there a real drummer involved? This song and middle side? Yeah, these are both sampled, but they sound good. That means on the new album, some of them are... Kicks and snares are all samples. Mainly the toms are all samples. Do a little bit of hi-hat and crashes here in the studio, but usually just write everything on MIDI. Is there a live band that is able to play this stuff at this point or will there be soon? We are shooting for it. I mean, until now, we've been a studio band, but we recently recruited a couple of members to join the live lineup and have yeah. been practicing a bit. But it's been extremely hot summer and there's no air conditioning in our practice space. So we've kind of had to hold off. And then with the pandemic, you know, we're mm-hmm. extremely cautious with that and don't particularly want to be in big crowds quite yet anyway. So we are working on it and shooting for, we had thought fall, but it might be spring at this point last november we started practicing right mm-hmm. so yeah would this be a band where the drummer has to wear headphones because there's a digital heartbeat and you're you're you gonna reproduce yeah. all that strings <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff by i don't know do you have to get a whole new bunch of equipment or can you use the same at least transport the data over to something well we have Sorry. yeah we've got the uh, sure, technology yeah. so that's good we did this in Starlight Mint. I mean, I said we started as a seven piece, but once I went to make the record, came back and then reformed with a couple of the members that started the band to tour. We didn't have a string section. I played cello on a couple songs live just to prove that, you know, I could do something else. But we use backing tracks a lot for like strings and stuff. And then we do a lot of phrase sampling. So I'll put a lot of the actual recordings on a keyboard. And so. Barb can play string parts or whatever. Do you recall how this, with the snapping and clapping and the pitched triangles, which I guess are MIDI sounds, so it's easy to pitch them. You just play them higher. And the piano bit, but that's not real piano then? Yeah. So is that just you sitting down at the computer putting this thing together, or was there something floating around before that, you said? 
putting it together. It's a you little, know. little above. Yeah. yeah. But for that particular song, I mean, that goes back before I even met Barb on that, that little intro part. So yeah, a lot of MIDI, but it sounds good, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird just because we just did a record that we replaced all the MIDI parts. And then looking back on this stuff, it's like, okay, this is all MIDI, but it still sounds good. Well, and you've got the nice vocal effects in terms of not only just switching between the two of you, but Alan is a crowd. It was this double tracked away from the mic. Do you even remember how, how you simulate a crowd call and response there? Because Barb's singing lead at the beginning. Would you like to ride my bicycle tonight? Say, yeah. Hey, you know, it's just kind of me in the, you know, yeah, just yelling stuff in the background and, and double tracking and stuff. I like to do a lot of backing vocals. And is the approach, even though this was sort of a story, he's burning these girls with jet black mystery. It sounds like you're writing copy for the back of a comic book or something, not necessarily part of the story. But that's a cool sounding sentence. <laughs> is it, yeah, is that- yeah. That's a that's a phrase that mm-hmm. Jet Black Mystery. I've had that phrase personally for a while. Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. had another song, I think. Jeez, this is the first time I'm hearing this. <laughs> As I recall, I've used Jet Black in a lot of songs. That is, I'm not sure about the mystery, but that is a cool phrase. And like these words were made for me. So you're telling a story, but the narrator has some role. Are you even clear on what that is? It's Twilight Zone territory. So, yeah, it's all a little mixed up. Who knows what's up or down? Yeah, we don't really try to overanalyze things too much. Sure. One more thing. Trust the girl who (laughs) who knows abandonment. That's interesting. That's thought-provoking. Again, is that just some words put together or was there a thought? Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, there's past experiences that work your way in there kind of unconsciously. Mm -hmm. As I recall, we started this song and we didn't know really where it was going, but it had a lot of good colorful words and phrases and then barb kind of wrapped up the story a little bit because it was kind of all over the place you had it all in your mind what it was all about and how it was going to end and oh but, well things i mean just, i think jack dies because that was your idea i don't think it's necessarily written out that he dies but the yeah. video kind of makes it a little more a little darker yeah well i think the jack dying part is early on well, the bridge outside never be seen. I mean, it implies that he flies off and dies, but I guess we don't necessarily know that. It's about halfway into the song that we learned that. And then you have that you actually did let this one breathe more. This breaks three minutes, 319, that you've gotten this repeating thing and layering thing. And now we're going to have, you're going to answer each other and then have it collapse in this stumbling chaotic strings. Do you recall how that gesture, that sequence came together at all? No. Yeah, probably just late night craziness. I mean, we are night owls and work, you know, usually till two or three in the morning, at least sometimes four. Yeah, you start going a little crazy. And I think all these ideas just start coalescing. By starting with this thing that just repeats, it has some built in insanity factor and this, I, 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 you know, this thing that you were referring to. So like, what's it going to do in terms of shaking loose? So I can, I can see like, just patch something together. Let's just, cause it could just go on forever or there's no good ending for a repeating thing. Right? Yeah. It's saying. also a pretty tricky song. Um, there's a couple jumped beats. I don't know if you picked up on that, but like, we're going to play this song live because it's one of our favorites, but it's really, there's a couple tricky parts that like it skips a beat. 
Or would you just simplify that for the drummer's sake? Or is it essential to the... I've already kind of put like the click track and then counting out the jump beats for the drummer. So it's going to be, we have not tried it yet. Yeah, it is funny. A lot of these songs that, you know, we write and record. And then now that we're trying to perform some of them live, I mean, that's a whole different animal. Yeah, we just... It's like, how do you do this at the same time? Well, you don't. (laughs) This one in particular, though, is tricky. Well, and are the jump beats just so that you can make it more compact like having the four there would just be redundant just jump right to the next section you know after two or three it just gives it a little devo aspect or something but without the jump beats it feels naked so we'd have to perform it correctly what are the influences here even from starlight mints and you know it's i bet you got quirky a lot i got quirky a lot with my college band which is we got quirky a lot irritating yeah. but at least you know people know what to expect <laughs> baroque pop was mm. used a lot and then yeah, we've heard that about us recently yeah. Yeah, i don't mind quirky i mean quirky is good to me so so who else are you channeling other than devo is such a specific thing that even if you have some sort of the absurdist sentiment of devo you're not going to sound like devo like unless you're actually using a bunch of synths and mechanical sounding guitars and whatever People have said Pixies sometimes with our music. Pixies, well, and Stephen Malkmus, your voice is quite similar in some places, which is great as far as I'm concerned. The Pavement is one of my favorite bands. So. Yeah, I've gotten that a little bit, Violent Femmes. Like the Shins, I don't know, maybe more like the Starlight Mint stuff. Let's do some sponsor messages, starting with one about BeatStars, the world's number one digital music marketplace to buy and sell beats. So if you're a music creator, you could sell your products worldwide. Those could be loops, sound kits, vocals, lyrics, graphic design, video editing, whatever services you can provide. BeatStars has helped pay out over 200 million in music sales to hundreds of thousands of musicians. And of course, you might want to buy some of those things. Maybe you are interested in writing songs, but you don't play instruments or produce. BeatStars is the perfect place to start. Dozens of top charting songs from the past few years were made on BeatStars or created by BeatStars producers, including Lil Nas X's Old Town Road, CJ's Whoopity, Soulja Boy's She Make It Clap, and many more. The beats at BeatStars can be leased at very low rates, sometimes are even free, and are available for sale exclusively on the site. There are millions of beats available to you in any genre or style, so whether you're an independent artist, a rapper, a label, A&R, check out BeatStars. They also offer music distribution to dozens of streaming platforms for only $19.99 a year for unlimited song releases. So go to BeatStars.com slash N-E-M to get started on BeatStars. BeatStars is free to use for beginners, and you can also get a free one-month premium subscription to open your own virtual music store with the code N-E-M. That's BeatStars.com slash capital N, capital E, capital M. I also want to tell you about Nebbia and their Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. Nebbia is a cutting-edge, high-tech company made of former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. And they are based in California, where there is a drought that's getting worse and worse. And they put their technological acumen to developing powerful shower nozzle technologies that simultaneously do two things. They use only about half the water you would normally use, yet they provide a powerful, high-pressure, luxurious shower experience. And I want to tell you about the Quattro the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower, highly affordable, easy to install, available in a variety of finishes to match your existing bathroom, and thus the name Quattro. It has four different spray modes, so you can change them based upon your mood or to suit the shower preferences of different members of your family. 
So you could use the hard spray for rinsing thick and curly hair. You could use the angel hair mode, which has 150 streams of water for a calming and soothing sensation that provides surprisingly high pressure. The soft spray, which is my preferred one, which is Nebbia's signature spa-like feeling for a drenching, misty experience. And then there's a super saver mode for using with dogs and kids. And they also offer sustainable bathroom accessories such as the quick dry earth mat, shower shells, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. So why don't you look into upgrading your bathroom? You deserve it. The people in your family deserve it. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Let's open up the third can of worms here to get the third song out. Summary number three, you've mentioned a couple times. So this is off the dream that stuff was made of from the year 2000, which is your first album with them. Do you have a few words about this before we start? This also has some, you had the string players on this, you said. So. Yeah, this is like an early good song that I wrote. You know, it's like, I, I remember being very proud of it. I wrote it on a four track. So I wrote like the guitar part down, you know, and then, you know, I added the little whammy guitar and then sung the lyrics and then played it for some friends. They loved it. So I sort of redid the four track with cello, string parts, never had drums. You know, it was just this four track was just no drums or bass, just guitar, strings and vocals and some sound effects. I think even bands before Starlight Mints, I think I played that song. So it's been around. It's kind of like one of the oldest songs. So what's the prehistory? Like when did Starlight Mints start in relation to your graduating? Like, and when did you graduate? college or oh i did not graduate or, well, college sorry yeah. when would <laughs> when did you turn 21 ish i was la- kind of a late bloomer with songwriting so i started singing i wasn't even a singer at all until i was like 2021 20, i was in a band and that was early 90s or yeah all right so you're about the same age as i am so summary number three was i was probably about 24 25 and that was when i started really figuring out my voice and stuff it was sort of my kind of a prime year to start writing better songs than I had written before. I'd been in a couple other bands. One of the bands, Shrinker, made a record in LA and not so good. I mean, it's great that we made it and there's some history, but I just wasn't satisfied with it at all. What year around was that? Oh, probably 93. So I'm a late bloomer, but I, I had this four track kind of around that same time and spent two, three years not in a band, just four tracking, just getting good at, you know, arranging and singing and had a drum set in the house so I was living in and then eventually graduated to drum machines like a little bit before Starlight oh. Mints formed. Something like the Tascam oh, yeah, Studio. Oh yeah, well, well hold, hold on a second. I ha- happen to have been digitizing old tapes look at, this look week. At this. Oh, so you look have the model. That's, that's a better model. Well, this is, yeah, this is a better model but I have what you had. It was a four, uh-huh, yours a 424. Was a 424. Yeah, that was my initial one. That broke down a couple times. Then it broke down for good at some point. Got an eight track. So I had an eight track version of this. Oh, okay. And then that broke down. And then we bought this about 10 years ago off of some guy for like 45 bucks with a bunch of tapes. Brand new. Has been barely used. The fact that it is within reach of you, does that mean it still gets used sort of for demo purposes or something? If it's... It's crazy. Okay, so not that long ago, I started taking old demos 
and then bringing some tracks through nice preamps mm-hmm. and just being amazed at how great they sound. And so the idea, we get a new interface in our studio. So we used to only have like be able to record four things at one time, but now we can record like 20 things. And that's like the first time I've had that sort of ability besides the eight track cassette. You know? So you're paying for 20 nice preamps or you still use a different preamp? Yeah, I, okay. we have two really nice preamps okay. and then 18 okay preamps Uh right now but the idea is going back and forth with the four track having that ability just to sort of play around with the tape because i miss tape well let's actually play submarine number three It makes sense if you say this was written because this sounds like something that would have been on the radio in at least the sort of guitar part in like 1997. It makes sense that this was written earlier than this album came out. Yeah. A matter of fact, I remember our manager at the time, Scott Booker, we had made these demos and he was shipping them around to see if we can get signed to somebody. And I remember someone from Sub Pop saying to Scott Booker, well, it sounds a little too, it sounds like they were called the Halo Benders. I didn't even know the Halo Benders, who they were. But then later on, I realized there was like a whammy guitar. And so we got denied because it sounded like the Halo Benders, like we were trying to rip them off or something. You said you're reviving this. Are you going back this far for like the Double V live set? Is there any Starlight Mint stuff? We've talked about doing this song live. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a fan favorite. So we'll probably end up doing this song in some fashion. Different musicians have different ethics when it comes to bringing old songs to new bands. Usually there's enough lineup change over the years. To- you know, I really, I like this song so much that I want to redo it at some point. I feel like it needs, I wouldn't change it. I just want to make it sound better. I feel like it sounds kind of too lo-fi and I want it to sound big. You get new toys in the studio and you feel like, I want to redo everything I ever did. 
And <laughs> so it actually sounds, I don't really want to redo everything I've ever done, but maybe the first two Mint's records, I feel like I could sing them better, especially the first one, because there were really demos. And I think I probably sang this song in two takes in the studio. All right. I know this song. I'm just going to sing it, but I could totally sing it better. And I was convinced, you know, when we did take all the demos to New York and we, you know, Dave Sardi was producing that record. He kind of convinced me to sort of hands off. He's like, these are good as they are. And I sort of trusted that. But going back, I would redo all the vocals just because I can sing them better. You said the band added drums, for instance, those were not part of the initial conception. That first record was all natural. And they're pretty articulated drums. You've got very distinct sections, just like the rest of your stuff. I guess once you get into that, were you orchestrating the drums the same way you would orchestrate everything else? It's just that you're doing it with the drummer there in front of you. For the most part, I don't think I was as picky, you know, as I would be today. That's kind of an example of a song that I didn't have drums or bass for it, but the drummer kind of played the drums, pretty simple, simple drum line. And then I did write the bass line for the bass player before going into the studio. Like um, writing out on a piece of paper the bass line? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tabbing it out. Yeah. Just depends how. What? I, I teach too. So I do sure, a lot of tabbing. Sure. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I don't doubt your ability to do it. I don't know. I started in orchestras. And so my first songs in high school, and I had a friend with a sequencer, and we were orchestrating stuff very carefully. And then getting guitarist and drummer and bass, you know, I was playing bass, but other people to play with us. Anyway, I soon learned within a couple of years, don't ever do that <laughs> because. That is a way to make everybody quit the band. Yeah, somehow I got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the string players moved away, you said, but was there a lot of turnover otherwise in that band through its years? Such that Yeah, but there's a lot of turnover, but it was a lot, a lot of turnover that they would come back, like reoccurring people, you know, come back. It was just sort of a given that I was the leader and I was going to be writing the parts. Well, I guess if you're getting opportunities for the band, that's kind of the important thing. That I had people quitting on a, a general basis because not enough gigs. But if you're actually succeeding, <laughs> then great. Then people will see a point because they're getting actually paid or did it actually break a profit? Also, if someone had an idea and was just like, what about we do this? I'm always open to ideas. You know, since I've had a four track or ability to actually write the part out. The orchestration on the vocals here sounds very much like what you two do on the current thing that now we'll have the female vocal jump in and shout over you. And now we're going to have a parallel octave where if somebody is singing an octave under you, is that still you or was that one of the other guys? Probably me. Most often you. You got me rolling around, frog on my hands, holy shazam. I see you on a submarine. I hadn't listened to that submarine number three in a long time until just like literally 20 minutes before we started this <laughs> and i was like oh there's a lower vocal on there you're the fishy queen you know <laughs> yeah there's well there's a lower vocal like you got me rolling around and i just forgot you know i don't think that when we played that live even that we even had that low vocal well it's interesting what parts of the arrangement get considered part of the song right what you will actually miss and so if you have a new lineup you'll like Somebody's got to cover that counter melody, that something where clearly the thickening of the vocal was not something you cared about. Which is strange. Yeah. I don't think we ever played it live with the lower vocal, but I could be wrong. This whole thing is very compact. Two minutes. Two minutes. Yeah. But you get the distorted female vocal counting off one, two, as if you're going to like end the song. Is that where that came from? Or like, do you recall why that's even there? This is all initial four track of the song. Mm. Like I said, I wrote this song in 20 minutes or whatever. 
I had those, all those parts written. Like it was me doing backup going one, two. So going into the studio, I was just having Marion or whatever playing it live at that time. But yeah, that was all pre-planned. I wish I had the four track. I've been looking for it or the four tracks. I think I, three different times I record this four tracks. So this is more of a relationship song than the others, which are more storytelling, colorful stuff. Although obviously there's still a lot of colorful imagery and things in here. Were you writing this as now I'm writing a relationship song? In other words, it's still not personal. Or was this actually an expression of something to someone in particular? It was just trying to write a goofy love song or whatever. Yeah, totally intentional. A love in quotes song. It's not. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) If you pull me apart, don't swallow my heart. At that point in time, I was writing a lot of songs with lyrics fragments that I already had. So I already had a couple other songs called Submarine. You know, I was using Baby Submarine. You're a baby submarine, another song. So that's why it's called Submarine Number Three is because it was like the third song that had the word submarine in it. And I had another song that was like, don't you swallow my heart. Don't you swallow my heart. That little bit came from that song. So it was really kind of like all these fragments of lyrics at the time coming together in one. That's how I probably wrote it so quickly is because the lyric fragments were already there. We've gotten quite a bit now of your backstory. And Barb, you said a little bit of your piano lessons and things, but were you collecting lyrics during your prehistory with this? Or had you never really thought about actually writing a song that you were more just, I took piano lessons and I enjoy music or? Well, I've always written poetry and a little bit of fiction too. So, I mean, I've always been kind of English minded and did have some band involvement. I've written you know, a couple of little songs before, but you know. She's built for it. Are you looking back through 20 years of notebooks and like pulling lyrics out of, you know, for current use? No, not really. I mean, the past 13 years, we've been together almost 13 years now. And yeah, we have lots of little notebooks with yeah. little phrases and things written down. That Notebooks and phones now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Notepad on the phone, um, little phrases iPads. that might be used later. Yeah. What is the preferred? Do you both use the voice memo thing and walk around whenever just any any little melody strikes you or? Lately. A little bit. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. It just depends. I mean, we have the home studio, so that really helps. But I mean, there's been times Alan's in here working on something and then I, the question's closed, the last song on our new album. And I was like, well, what about something like this? And I ran upstairs and sang something different, a different melody line. And I was like, yeah, let's go with that. So yeah, that was the song, Questions Closed. It was the only song that was built from the ground up on this album. Well, that sounds like a reason for us to conclude with that rather than map the channels. I was up in the air. Which one would you rather highlight? Questions Close is newer, but map the channels is, I mean, we're proud of that too. And that was all for EP. Yeah. That song actually went to space. So yeah. Let's talk about that song. Jeez. Yes. And it has a cool little, another, is it the same animator? I watched the video for this one. I didn't see the video. No, that is actually Alan handed the animation on that. All the artwork is Grant Fused our album artist who did the art for all three albums. But Dr. Chris Buschausen, one of the astronauts on the Blue Origin mission, the second human flight, he put out an APB, you know, he's going to do a, take a flash drive with him with songs on it. And so Map the Channels was one of the songs that was in his pocket when he went to space and back. With the, what's his name? Star Trek. Right. With William Shatner yeah. from Star Trek, who was also in the same space with our song on a jump drive. So <laughs> did not hear it. <laughs> Will not react to it, but was in its presence. It was still there. The, uh, the, the data was in space. So 
kind of cool. Well, I've sent my stuff over the internet, so I'm pretty sure it's flipped to a satellite and come back down. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that counts. <laughs> no, that's that's a very cool accomplishment. So what is determining, you know, that that was going to be an EP and, you know, not just hold off for an album? Like, what is the business? That, even your album now is, what, 37 minutes? It's not just your love of short songs. What is it about the release environment these days? Like, why even do albums as opposed to just, oh, I've got an EP. That's enough to promote and do one of those every six months. If it's not a concept album like Jack. It's really, unfortunately, financial decisions for us. We are self-released. We are not getting any younger, you know, have very limited resources. So, you know, to what extent? Because, you know, when you put all that effort into something, you want to get, you know, a little PR, a little attention for it and make videos for it. So it's really kind of what we have money for. But going forward, we do think we'll do more singles rather than albums. We're kind of itching right now to write. Right. We finished this album, you know, so long ago. It's been over a year that it was finished before it was released. So we're kind of chomping at the bit to write some new things. What is the process for videos with this? I saw you have video footage. At least you've mastered the thing on Spotify, even with the 2017 album, I believe, where when you hover on a song or you're listening to a song and it plays like a what a five second loop, you know, again and again and again. Oh, uh, the little video yeah, loop yeah. with it. That's a new thing that we just kind of did that really quickly. Yeah. Well, we feel like our music, you know, it just has a lot of a visual element to it, you know, so it's nice to have a something to go along with it. Yeah, we planned for three videos for this album and we'll plan it on making yeah. another couple. And the map to channels, the video, yeah, like it was Grant's work, artwork that I just kind of like cut and pasted it and then got into After Effects and sort of After Effects has been kind of like a hobby of mine for the last like 10 years. And so it was just me toying around with After Effects and probably shows that I'm not very good at it, but. Still kind of fun. Having something to show visually is, yeah. is so much better than, <laughs> uh, you know, having CD Baby as my music, you know, just gets plugged right into the still picture of the album cover or whatever. That's not. Hmm. Yeah, we're trying. Tell me a little before we get out of here about have you, you started writing the new stuff or there's just this big backlog, this pile of half finished, you know, sequences with no lyrics. There's, oh, yeah, there's oh, definitely yeah. piles and piles and piles of, of, yeah, there's a huge backlog and just ideas. And yeah, we could release a new album every six months if we had, you know, the time and the budget for it. You just have to be okay with them sounding bad. That's okay. You just, you just crank it well, up. We have pretty high standards <laughs> on how we, how we do it. And then we have a, great relationship with Wes Sharon at 115 recording and we finished the mixing and mastering on all three of them with him and I think he adds a really kind of that special extra sheen to it all. Are you sort of doing your own mix and then the way that I have to do it because my you know somebody else uses a different DAW you have to you know submit a single vocal track even though you might have recorded it in 19 different pieces and put little bits in but you you know something with discrete five tracks of drums or whatever whatever the thing is and then he gets you something and then you... No, we sit there with him. We're there for every minute okay. of it. Yeah, we don't do the ship it off and wait for it. So even during the pandemic, you were, you know... Yeah, we were in masks yeah. um, sitting there. And yeah, we spent close to six days on the mixing and mastering of the album. But yeah, the pre-production is key, though. You know, so, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And you know, a lot of those mints albums, just tons of production into that. Well, you were full computer on by then, right? With the last one. Well, the third one was, gosh, I, I, that could be a whole podcast talking about that one, Drohaton. But yeah, so we've uh, gotten pretty good about preparing for studio. We even brought a little studio to the studio for like any last minute, like vocal, you know, stuff that we wanted to like, you know, re-sing or 
So we had a microphone there just in case we needed to re-sing a part. And we did the record all on uh, SM7B, which is the first time we've mm-hmm. ever... We've, the mic I'm talking in right now is what we primarily used for all of the other Double V and the last two Starlight Bench records. And then we just started using the 7B because we got that cloud lifter. And the cloud lifter makes a world of difference, you know? Sure. I just added this to my world in the last year that I was using a AKG 3000 for podcasting and for music for, for many years, many years, since the 90s before that. And it's funny that, that that's sort of a go-to mic. And it's like the one that Michael Jackson used on Thriller. It's not new technology at all. I've come to the, the conclusion that it's really the preamp that kind of makes the biggest difference. We have a nice channeler two channel TG2 preamp that I've had for 20 years. And it's just been like the best investment ever. Just a really nice two channel preamp that you, you know, you can plug a bass in. So it was more expensive than your mics at the time by far. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that it's got a really nice resale value. If we ever want to swap it out for something else. But anyway, though, back to map the channels. I really like it almost sounds like a science anthem. We are the birds, we are the bats part, you know, when you actually get to that part of the song. I don't even recall why we got to that point writing that chorus and it was just like birds, we are the bats. Yes. And we were I, I remember us both feeling, yes, that's an awesome lyric because it's just kind of like out of the blue. But the whole idea I guess was we're flying creatures. We're watching observing. We're observing the world from above and you guys are a bunch of pathetic you know i don't know <laughs> no <laughs> know what the real theme is there well and it's got a nice 80s sort of vibe to it. maybe it's just the choice of thin sounds or whatever that the wheel has turned since the 90s and now you can have these mm-hmm. clear yeah. digital versions of analog strings or whatever and it sounds it does kind of mm-hmm. have a little cure or i don't know what it is but all of our music has a little retro flair to it i think i don't know what the future of music is in terms of like you know, it was 80s and then it rolled into grunge. I'm now old enough. I don't know what is the So now it's all consolidation as far as I'm concerned. I agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of music these days kind of has or, or did. I'm talking about 2012 until now. There's a lot of like reverbs and I don't know what else to, to call it because I don't really we don't really use it too much. But there's like this like sort of sheen that I feel like a lot of artists are putting on their music like a distorted delay reverb, which I don't understand why that kind of keeps. And also, I mean, the pitch correction is sort of the thing that has stuck out that it is not acceptable in, on a radio thing to not have everything perfectly in pitch. Do you just do that to yourself before you send it to your mixing guy so that for sure it's not going to be overdone? Or you're We just- never do pitch correction in the studio. We do it ourselves here, but we don't use any auto-tuners. Okay. If, if we do pitch, if we do correct it, we just do it in Pro Tools. Just like that note needs to maybe be shifted a little bit. But we pretty much don't do any pitch correction. I mean... Do it again. Do another take. Yeah. We'll definitely do editing. You know, we'll definitely edit. But I don't like the sound of those pitch corrector things for, for the most part. I mean, I've never owned Melodyne. I heard that's pretty good. It'd be nice, nice to mess around with that. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure immersing myself in your catalogs thank you uh here it is map the channels from songs for birds and bats
Thanks so much to Alan and Barb, as well as to Howard Wilfing from Howland Wolf Media, who pitches me many of my guests, this among them. I, of course, normally don't talk to more than one person at a time, but I think after now having done it a couple times, it works pretty well, especially when there's such a close songwriting team here. I don't know that we got any insight on exactly who contributes what to what and how they actually work together, but I can say that I'm very much envious as a motivator, I mean, it's like if you're a band of college age people and you all live in a house together. I was an apartment mate with my main bandmate, Steve, for a couple of years there, and it really helped get things done, which is something that most adults completely lose out on unless you happen to marry someone who's a member of the band and hope that you don't get divorced and the band is ruined. But Alan and Barb seem to have a very productive, creative partnership Again, go to doublev.net, and I recommend checking out their many videos. There are some tunes that Barb is the sole lead singer on, and of course, the Starlight Mints have a very interesting catalog if you want to delve back into that. Very well-crafted stuff. My next interview is with Neil Gust from the band Number 2. 
previously in Heat Miser with Elliot Smith. Then I just talked to a gentleman named Mike Baguetta. He's a great guitarist who right now has a unit that he plays in with legendary bassist Mike Watt, who I've had on the show before, and even more legendary drummer Jim Keltner of Traveling Wilburys and many other things. So to make sure you get prompt access to those interviews and all the other ones that I've done, make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can find all the links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or just look us up on the podcast platform of your choice. And I would request that if you enjoyed the show that you go leave a rating and review at one of those places that will help people learn about the show. As always, I want to encourage you to support the effort. Go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You'll get in addition to ad-free episodes, the notes that I post for these episodes, although I forgot to post them in the last two and nobody commented. So I don't know if people are reading those, but they're up now. And it's nice to have the lyrics for all the tunes and my comments on the arrangements right in front of you as you're listening if you want to dive a little more deeply into the songs. I've continued to slowly release my old music on all the streaming platforms now Two albums by my college band, The Matrix, M-A-Y-T-R-I-C-K-S, which I co-fronted with Steve Petrinko, whom I just mentioned, who is just a guest on my Pretty Much Pop podcast. They are up on Spotify and YouTube and presumably Apple Podcasts and the other places like that. It's some very creative stuff, maybe kind of ragged sounding, certainly compared with my recent work and my work with the band New People. But I would love if I were not listed on Spotify as the sole listener to that band, M-A-Y-T-R-I-C-K-S, or it is linked from my Mark Lint profile on Spotify there, if you look in the Appears On section. All right, enough about me. I hope you have a good week, that you are doing something creative. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintz-Meyer signing off. Music.